she's always been the type of person that just says things and she just speaks her mind. I guess that has a little bit to do with not having a formal education. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 52 of The Body Serve. I'm James, and uh, I'm in Toronto, by myself, and Jonathan is down in Cincinnati, still at the tournament. Uh, I left on Wednesday and spent a great night with friends in London and to pick up my dog, who I'm talking to now, so it doesn't feel like I'm talking to myself. Uh, but I just wanted to drop in because I'm not going to be on this episode of The Body Surf technically. So I just kind of wanted to do my little intro and, you know, get my uh, my voice credit, I guess. I didn't want an episode to pass without both of us being on it. So uh, I will have some stories to share about my time in Cincinnati, uh, probably on the next episode, uh, because it's better as a conversation, I think. Uh, but basically, I spent about three days in the rain. Uh, there was some tennis, I got to see Feliciano Lopez, um, Fernando Verdasco practicing shirtless, which, of course, one does when it's 70 degrees and cloudy all day. I saw... I didn't get to see Songa. He's he's such a phantom lately. Uh, I got to see Dominic Team practicing. I saw Grigor Dimitrov just swipe aside Gilles Simon in a pretty impressive display. And... Yeah, I saw. I got to actually see some matches between people I don't really like, which was an interesting experience because I wasn't really rooting for either one, so I could just kind of enjoy the tennis. So that was interesting. Uh, but the real reason I'm here is to introduce uh, something really exciting, probably one of the most exciting things for me about the body serve since we've started this podcast. Uh, Jonathan was able to secure an interview with Svetlana Kuznetsova on Thursday after she won her match. Uh, so, you know, if you've listened to The Body Serve, you know we're both big fans of Svetlana's. I've really liked her way back when she was a teenager, when Martina Navratilova chose her to be her doubles partner. Uh, and then, as you know, she won the 2004 US Open in a pretty big shock, and in a year when two other Russians won Grand Slams for the first time as well. Uh, so... We both have admired Svetlana's athleticism, her personality, her tattoos for so many years. And so without further ado, here is Jonathan and Svetlana just uh, having a little chat in Cincinnati. Sitting across with me, I have Svetlana Kuznetsova. She's a two-time Grand Slam champion, and she's fresh off a third-round win against Tamir Baczynski. Congratulations. Thank you. You're now 4-0 against her which is no small feat. She's a very accomplished player. She's been doing really well the last two years. How do you manage to uh, get by her? Yeah, it was a very tough match. I was set up and to love and then three two and the serve. I lost a little bit my concentration there. I got a bit tired. And then in third set, it was more difficult, but I managed to get on top and to keep a lead. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's tough match. It's never easy because to me, fights till the end, uh, so do I, and it was a really entertaining match. 
one of those match points that she saved, anybody would be proud to have those retrieving skills. What do you do when somebody does that on match point? I keep playing. I mean, it's one more point. You know, we all have experience and so do I. And I just keep fighting and keep doing my best. Uh, the match was played on court nine. Uh, this is my second time in Cincinnati. We told our listeners last year that Court 9 is one of mine and a lot of tennis fans' favorite courts. Is it as much fun to play on as it is for fans to watch tennis on that court? I don't know how it's to watch it on this court, <laughs> because but I have it's... not watched that. But I guess it's nice court because for fans to watch because it's slower, you know? It's also very intimate. Yes, it's also great. I mean, it's really nice court to play. I just played on this court yesterday and today, so yeah, yeah. it's great. <laughs> so... You get asked questions over and over and over again, the same questions. If you had the opportunity to retire any one question, which would it be? So you never get asked it again. Why did you start to play tennis? You probably answered that hundreds why, of times why, by now. Sorry, why you didn't go to, to the cycling? Yeah. Because, I mean, my parents cycling, mm-hmm. I get it every time. Why didn't you do cycling instead of tennis? I was in your pre-tournament press. And you were talking about how you didn't have a fitness coach at the start of the year. You did all your off-season training yourself. And just sitting there listening to you talk about that experience, it seemed very much that you were in control of your career right now, that you're very much driving driving the car. Has that always been the case? Is it something new to you that's come with more maturity, more age? Definitely, I grow up a lot and I get much more to realize things. Uh, Many players, as we grow up and we like start very young we have our team and many players have parents coaches whoever takes a decision because in the start you're scared you're young you don't want to you used that somebody else takes decision and i wanted to change this line a little bit my life or my career or whatever it is my destiny changed made this different to me so i i learned that i know already to take decisions and i have to do that because like that i'm responsible actually i was Send it to my parents since I was 16. I said, I want to take my decision and make my mistakes. But like this, I learned. I mean, that was my choice in the end. And I think now I'm more in control than, uh, than ever, actually. Do you think that helped you out a lot when you started your career, not being so afraid necessarily of being alone on tour, traveling the world by yourself? You're okay to make those mistakes and, and live with it? Yeah, I, I'm okay to make mistakes because I think... Uh, well, you never know if it's mistake or it's not, mm-hmm. you know, even you think it's mistake, it's may not, you know, I think oh, we all have destiny and things happen for a reason. And first of all, if I did so, that means it was my will. So at this point, I wanted that. So it's no regret to that. And I think it's important to know and, um, and just real- realize and analyze things. It's very important. Does it give you a lot of self-satisfaction knowing that you trained yourself in the off-season and then you went on to win Sydney, I believe it was, and you had such strong results to start the year? Uh, I'm perfectionist. I always yeah. want to more. And, but, I mean, I don't get satisfied. That's probably my thing. I, I gotta do it sometimes to be more proud of myself, but I struggle a little with that, but I do give myself a lot of credit for that. The rankings change every week. There are websites where you can go and look at your provisional ranking after every match to see where you will be next week when they become official. Yeah. Is that something that you worry about, you think about on a constant basis, and do you even know what you're ranked right now in singles? Uh, I uh, Well, when I was <coughs> 25 or something, I was like, no, I don't want to look <laughs> at that. And then they're like, okay, they want to get to top 10. I'm like, I, I don't mind. I just wanted to play because uh-huh. a couple of years I couldn't get it to top 10. 
And then uh, when I was like 11, 12, 13, of course I was concerned. I just wanted to reach to ten. Ten, top 10. <laughs> because I'm, I mean, it was some point of goal. I was like, am I top 10? Am I top 10? And But it doesn't really matter yeah. that much, you know, on the rankings. It doesn't, but then it matters to enter better tournaments, to get better seat, to get better room, bet, better court. I don't know. It's so many things affects your ranking, mm-hmm. but still, uh, if you start, if I start to focus on it, it doesn't work for me. I just want to focus on each game, each match because it's extremely tough. Uh, the rivality in women's tennis is extremely high. It's no easy matches, and I just want to be focused on that. You're one of the few people on tour who is able to compete very well with Serena Williams pretty much every match that you play. What do you account for that? And could you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Serena? Because mm. <laughs> it's, mean, it's no small Serena feat. I respect Serena a lot. And, I mean, she's great. For me, she's uh, one of the best, or maybe the best women's tennis player who I've seen. And she's so, so strong. And, uh, yeah, we, can, we we could have hang out a lot, but now it's, I, I guess it's my ranking is a bit higher. It's more difficult to hang out <laughs> and do things, you know, but I have a respect for her and much is a, a extremely tough when I play her, but I just go out there and try to do my best as every other match that I do. Losing in tennis is such a big part of the sport. It's unavoidable. Even when you're winning a lot, you're losing a lot as well. Yeah. How have you reconciled yourself with that part of the sport? Well, that's experience where it gets to you when you start to understand and realize it on the event. It's like uh, in the year, it's maybe 20 tournaments where you play, 25, whatever number it is. And you're going to understand that each week you're going to end up losing. Like maybe you can win at your best year, five, six tournaments a yeah. year. It's five, six weeks. The rest, at some stage, you're going to lose and you cannot get really down. That was my struggle. I, when I lose matches, I was like... I was damaged a lot and to recover that mood and everything it takes time so you suffer a lot during you stay away of home it's a lot of stress when you lose it's like you destroy it's lots of ups and downs but um, for me main thing is to go out and do my best each match and if I done that and other player play better I normally don't get that much upset so I keep it a bit um, equal the level of my ups and downs. Do you enjoy the wins more now? I saw you leaving the court on court nine and you just seem to be I mean, clearly tired, but so happy and engaging with the fans and just seem to be soaking in the experience. No, I mean, I enjoy the fans. I appreciate them a lot. I think in the States the fans are so nice, positive. I mean, this tournament is packed. You don't mm-hmm. see many many like neighborhoods around here and people it means people come from far and they really positive it's really great energy and they're so supportive i appreciate that and of course i gotta give credit back and attention back to the fans and um definitely enjoy the win but i cannot say i enjoy losing not at all <laughs> but i learned from that and this this is part of the game bear with me a bit this is a bit of make-believe if tennis were to have a tennis commissioner and tomorrow you were appointed tennis commissioner, what were some of the first changes you would do on day one to the sport? To tennis? To tennis. You could change anything you wanted. Mm. Make it count. I would uh, put it uh, not so much. I, I'll have a longer break. Okay. For sure, longer break in the end of the season and uh, not travel so much. <laughs> If you could tell your younger self one thing, knowing what you know now about being a professional tennis player, what would that be? 
Yeah, just to keep working, don't get so much upset that the career is very long and just give it best every match you play and practice it. Did you ever get to a point in your career where tennis just wasn't fun for you? Yeah. And uh, how did you cope with getting out of that funk? I was like, damn, it's not nice. I don't enjoy practice. I don't enjoy traveling. It was really too much. I wanted to stay home. And it was very hard for me to take a decision to get a break because then you're like concerned. Do I gonna get back that easy? Is it hard when you get out of the like the tournament schedule and matches and tournaments? But I got injured at the same time. I, I guess my body also felt so and I had a couple months break. It was the only one I had in whole my career. And then, yeah, it's better. Some, it's just you need sometimes break. Yeah. When you're planning your schedule at the start of the year or at the end of the year, rather, are there any times of the year that you're, you say to whoever is with you when you're making the schedule, I need this time off? There's no negotiations. This is sweater time. Uh, I mean, not really. I mean, after Wimbledon, I try to have some time off. So I have two small breaks after mm-hmm. November and Wimbledon. But this year was Olympic, so I basically had no chance. We're going to finish up with just uh, five small questions. They're on the lighter side. I was looking through your Twitter feed, and you had said that you wanted to learn French, which learning a new language is wonderful, but why French in particular? Uh, I always wanted so, and um, it sounds great, you know, and I feel with uh, I know Spanish, English, and with French, I would occupy worldwide almost Mm -hmm. everything. Of all the players who have retired during your time on tour, who would be your dream on retirement? If you could bring anybody back right now to play on the tour. Alicia Molik. Yeah. yeah. We're in the golden age of TV. What's your favorite TV shows to watch? TV show, TV show, TV show. Uh, Empire. Yeah? Yeah. Did you find that there was a little bit of a drop off with season two from season one? Because I'm a big fan too. Like, last season is not so good. The first season was great. Yeah, I agree. We did an episode last year called Tennis Divas. Uh And the basic gist of it was we were talking about tennis players and who they would be as music divas. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, Serena would be a cross between Beyonce and Mariah. Who do you think would best encapsulate Sveta? Rihanna. (laughs) Rihanna? (laughs) (laughs) Why? Not so... Not so scandalous, not so <laughs> this all undressing doesn't uh-huh. quite go with me. But yeah, I mean, she's cool. Have you seen her in concert before? No. No? Okay. I've been on Mariah concert. And no. And the final question I ask everybody who comes on the show, Whitney, Mariah, or Celine? Can I have somebody else? <laughs> <laughs> That's an answer in of itself. Um, well, you said you went to a Mariah concert, right? Uh, or... Or Celine Dion? Whitney. Whitney? Yeah. Good choice. All right, thank you, Sveta. I appreciate it. You just heard from Svetlana Kuznetsova during my sit-down with her earlier this week. I believe it was Thursday. Hope you enjoyed the interview. A bit of more good news. Today, I was able to sit down with Sanya Mirza, current world number one in doubles. That may change as of Monday, because tomorrow in the Cincinnati doubles final, she'll be playing the team of Martina Hingis and Coco Vandeweghe. So if Mirza and Stritseva don't win tomorrow, then Martina Hingis will be the number one come Monday. One of the two will, will keep their number one ranking. That's one of the more interesting storylines to come out of 
Cincinnati this year. Martina Hingis and Sonia Mirza playing their first tournament apart from each other since Santina, as their doubles coupling was called, since they split a few weeks ago. And here we are, we have Santina again, but they're playing each other, not playing with each other. So that's something to look out for. As for Kuznetsova, let us know what you think about her claiming Rihanna as her tennis diva. I thought that was pretty funny, and I also enjoyed her explanation that not so much the undressing <laughs> and the scandalous parts, that added a bit of levity to the interview. Uh, being my first interview with a tennis player, or really anybody of any public stature, it was uh, a bit unnerving, but uh, Svetlana made for an engaging interview, as did Sanya. Definitely give us your feedback as to the bits that you found interesting from the Kuznetsova interview and keep an eye out for the Mirza interview which will be coming on our next episode. By that time I will be back in Toronto. Right now I'm recording from my hotel room in Mason, Ohio and you have already heard from James. He recorded his bit a couple days ago to intro the episode. So while we're not able to speak to each other on this episode due to technical difficulties you'll still have heard from both of us which is something that we felt was pretty important for us consequently this is going to be probably the shortest episode of the 52 that have been recorded on the body serve for some of you that might be a nice respite <laughs> a little bit more to the point this time around but rest assured come next episode when we're able to sit down together and and deconstruct our experiences in cincinnati James was here from opening Saturday to Wednesday, and I've been here for the duration of the tournament, uh, that when we're back together, you'll be getting a much more comprehensive recap of the tournament and our general thoughts of what we experienced. Just a quick rundown of some of the things that I've been doing and experiencing this week. Being the first time that I'm covering a tennis tournament as credentialed press, the, the actual press conferences and asking questions of players was something that was very new to me. And it really put into perspective the whole business of press conferences. Because previously, and I'm sure it's the case for a lot of people, you get snippets of press conferences. Somebody will, will quote one question that was asked in the press conference at bigger tournaments or toward the back end of tournaments, you'll get to see transcripts. And the, one of the takeaways that I have from this week is that it's not there, there are many layers to being able to understand what's going on in a press conference. Because, for example, I asked a question, and when I went and read the transcript, the, the transcript didn't account for the fact that the question was interrupted by laughter from the audience and by Angelique Kerber. I'm not trying to say that I'm, like, super funny or anything, but... The way the question was presented in the transcript wasn't how it happened or played out live. And so one of the things that I'll take with me is that unless I'm able to, to physically watch a press conference, there's always going to be some bit of context that's missing from player responses. So when you're, if you think about when you're looking at just one question or one piece of a question, and then you say, well, what was the question that came before? What was the question that came afterward? Was it building off of a previous idea or something that the player had previously said? Uh, it's It might be wise, and it's something that I'll take with me going forward, is that I'll be more hesitant to jump to judgment based on just something that I've read 
rather than seen. It, it does, it can make a big difference. And also I, I had this idea of reading press conference transcripts and thinking, well, wow, this is so incredibly dull. But the environment in the room quite often is entirely different from what's represented on paper. And the, the perceived dimness of the questions or dullness of the interview, the repetitiveness of the interview, uh, it's, that's something that, that, that isn't always necessarily the case from actually being there. So take that however you want to take it, dissect it, take it with a grain of salt, ignore me, whatever. But that was just one, one bit that I, that I noticed this week. Also, there were quite a few interesting tidbits from the press conferences. In, in uh, Nadal's press conference after his opening match win against Cuevas, he was asked about that incident that was being speculated about on, on Twitter, where he was supposedly... See, what had happened was he was supposedly refused entry to a restaurant in Rio because they were closing. And he was asked about it and he said, well, you know, I was actually out and about and I saw the 100-meter race going on, which presumably was a Usain Bolt 100-meter gold medal race. And he stopped to watch it in the middle of the street. And then afterward, he went to this restaurant, which was already closed, and he made a, a, a point of it to not lay blame at the restaurant, on the restaurant, to make it known that he should have gotten there earlier if he wanted to eat there, which is typical Nadal, right? And then he said, well, you know, it was no big deal. I went and found something else to eat somewhere else. Of course, the big story that might come out of this event is Angelique Kerber becoming the new WTA number one. Today, she beat Simona Halep in straight sets. And if she's able to beat Karolina Pliskova tomorrow, she will overtake Serena Williams and become the new number one. Which, it's crazy to think. If you think back two years ago, who would have thought that we'd be in this position right now where Kerber would have won four titles in 2015, then been able to build on that right away, right out of the gates in 2016, stare down Serena Williams in the Australian Open final and beat her the way she did, playing that level of tennis. She was able to back that up with a Wimbledon final and then a couple of weeks ago, just last week, she won the Olympic silver medal. With all the matches that she's played in, the re in recent weeks with the Olympics and with Montreal and now Cincinnati, she still managed to have a good enough week to reach the Cincinnati final. That said, Pliskova is playing out of her mind this week. She summarily dismissed Garbina Muguruza today in, in a pretty impressive display. And as we know, Kerber and Pliskova played two finals last year, two three-set finals. She's not going to be... It's possible that this she could have her hands full tomorrow. When I asked Kerber about needing just the one win to get to number one today... She said, well, it's not something that she's trying to think about all the time. But it's interesting to sit there and watch her command a press room. She's clearly no longer the player who, who lacked confidence, who probably didn't believe that she was a top player, that she was deserving of being in the top 10 or top 5 or now number 2. But at this point, Kerber so clearly understands how good she is. It's no longer a surprise that she should find herself in these positions. Whether you're a Serena fan, which 
you know, James is, I am, the podcast is a fan of Serena Williams. There, it's so difficult to to begrudge Angelique Kerber any of her success because as as any onlooker can can easily discern from watching women's tennis over the last 18 months, she's so clearly deserving of the position that she's in. Another press tidbit that I want to share with you is uh, Rafa's press conference after he lost against Borna Cioric. He called for the trainer after he lost the first set 6-1. The set went by in the blink of an eye, and he got some treatment to his arm. It, it was un- unclear at the time if he was experiencing any new injuries. He was uh, getting attention to the shoulder, to the arm, and there was speculation as to whether he had picked up a new injury. But in his press conference, Rafa was unequivocal in saying that it was merely just the wear and tear of having played so many matches in such a short period of time, especially after having not played at all since picking up his wrist injury toward the back end of the spring and having to withdraw from Roland Garros. He was also asked if somehow the arm and shoulder troubles that he had, which he described as the arm feeling dead, if that was related to or had created more problems for his wrist, which was the the primary injury that he had been recovering from. And Rafa got a little bit testy in saying, you know, I've said this so many times already, that the wrist is what it is, it's not getting worse, and they're not related. And the thing that he said in that press conference that I don't think he communicated very well in previous press conferences, even dating back to Rio, is that for him, he says that he has to play in order for the wrist and his tennis to get better. The conventional wisdom, I guess, would would say or dictate that you need rest in order for an injury like a wrist injury to get better. But he says that the wrist needs to feel the repetitive stress of playing tennis, the ball and the racket, to build up strength in his wrist for it to eventually get better. Uh, He seemed totally unconcerned about it. He said that it was strictly that his body just gave up. He had nothing, (laughs) nothing left in the tank after all the matches he played in Rio and that he'd take the time at least a couple days off to rest ahead of the US Open. He also wasn't concerned that his fitness wasn't up to scratch to be able to withstand best of five set matches at a, at a US Open, at a Grand Slam. For him, playing four and a half to five hours pretty much every day in Rio was akin to playing a best of five set match. And so he's not worried about being able to play those long, grueling matches at a US Open as opposed to what we saw in Cincinnati where he struggled to get through two sets. At one point, he was even down 6-1-4 love, points away from going down 6-1-5 love. It would have been one of, if not the worst losses of his career. He managed to bring it back to a more respectable scoreline, 6-1-6-3, and even had a break point to get back on serving that second set, but he was just gassed. So for folks who were wondering are concerned about whether Rafa was further injured, if he had injured himself in new ways or complicated existed injuries. He says that's not the case. We'll see what happens in New York in a couple weeks. I've written a couple pieces uh, this week from Cincinnati. Check out sportscribe.ca. That's where those are housed, if you will. If you haven't been following the body serve on Twitter, check that out. There are some Pretty good stuff there for you to go back and look through the last week at the body serve. I'm Jonathan. My Twitter handle is at sportscribe ca. 
James, who you heard from at the start of the episode. <laughs> He's at Elliot JMR, two L's, two T's. And I look forward to being back home soon. <laughs> it's been a, a pretty long week. A lot of the experiences have just kind of uh, blended together. It's hard to sift through what exactly it is that I've experienced. So having a few days away from the tennis, the long drive home, getting back to work to sift through and sort through the entire week's worth of experiences will be good to then be able to come to you sometime next week and uh, give you a recap of the body serve at the Western and Southern Open. And we'll be bringing you that interview with Sanya Mirza. Dare I say, I think you'll find it worth your while. Sanya is a, a very engaging and forthright interview. She gives thoughtful responses. There are certain parts of the interview where we get into talking about feminism that, you know, might not gel with some of the things that you've heard on the podcast over the last year and a half. But it'll make for a good discussion between James and I when the time comes. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Hope you enjoyed Sveta's interview this time around and this episode. Till next time. <laughs>